All is indeed well because of the work of Christ. Kids, four to six, you guys can go ahead and be dismissed to your class in the back. Jonathan and Caitlin are waiting for you. And the rest of you guys can have a seat. And as you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. We are embarking on a new, a new study today, uh, which we'll be in for quite a while. We've done a lot of short books so far as a church since we started last summer, uh, and now we're biting off a, a much bigger bite of the apple. We're going to be in Matthew for quite a while. Uh, there's a lot here. But I think it's important, if we're going to invest this much time in studying something, uh, to ask, why should we? Right? Why should we put this much time, this much effort into studying this particular part of God's Word? Now, maybe that seems like a silly question to you, right? Like, it's, it's in the Bible. Well, of, course, of course, it's good for us. God put it there, so why not do it? And that's surely true, and that's reason enough to put time into it. But I think we're better served if we keep asking that question down to deeper levels. And think about it. Right? When we eat, we don't always eat the same. Right? There's a way we eat when you're not really hungry, and the food is bland, but it happens to be mealtime, so you eat some anyway, and you just kind of move on with life. Right? But there are other times that are probably much less frequent and much more memorable and exciting when you're really hungry. And the person cooking really knows their way around the kitchen. And they're in their bag, and they're doing work, right? And you, you can recall that meal a year later, a couple years later, and everything that happened around it, right? Eating happened at both places, but it was very different because of the dynamics of what we were doing, right? And so and the way that you came to that food, right? The expectation, your hunger, your desire, your need for it, and the quality of what you were taking in created an entirely different experience of eating. We can do the same thing with God's word, right? We're like, yeah, it's the Bible. Let me go in here and, you know, I'm probably fine without it. Let me just do my thing. Or we can really stop and take it in. Like, hey, God, God of the universe gave this to us because we desperately need it and because it is unbelievably good. And I want us all to come to Matthew for however long we're in here, like people who are hungry. And we have a table at a five-star restaurant each Sunday, and we are ready to feast on this rich, rich quality that also satisfies every need that we have. Because that is what this book is. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. This is going to be kind of an on-ramp to Matthew's gospel. What kind of feast is it that God has given us in this book in particular? All of God's word is valuable, but this book serves a particular purpose. And why is it so good and why are we so desperately in need of it? We're going to begin to answer those questions today that we fleshed out throughout our entire study. But my prayer all week has been that as we take this, this first little tiny bite of this portion of God's word, that the Spirit would truly whet our appetites, that we would be delighted by what we see, and that he would give us a taste and a longing for what is next and what is to come. We're going to begin today at verse 1 of chapter 1. It's a simple, simple verse, but it is loaded with meaning. 
once we get into it. Matthew 1.1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are never as grateful for it as we should be. We always take it for granted to some degree. And I pray, Lord, as we look deeply into what it is exactly that we have our hands on right now as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Lord, that you would um, help us to see it more closely to what it really is, the treasure that it really is. And, and alongside that, you, that you'd help us more deeply understand our deep need for exactly what it brings to us. Father, these are things that only your spirit can do. There's no fancy wordplay. I can do that to work that in anybody, and I know it. Lord, so I just pray for your, your faithfulness to us through your spirit, that you would give us hearts that meld uh, and yield under your word as you wield it for the good of your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to do two main things today, church. First, we're going to actually talk about the title of this book. It's not something we do very often, right? The Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew. That's actually something we need to talk about. That tells us something about what we're about to read. Uh, so we're going to actually talk about that a little bit. Right? What do we, why do we know this book as that, and what does it mean? We're going to talk about what is a gospel, right? Why do we call this book that? Who is Matthew? And what is distinctive about this particular gospel that Matthew has written for us? Then we're going to look and see how some of those things play out in our text as we look at verse 1 and some of the verses that follow. So let's start here. The gospel of Matthew. What is a gospel? That is what is the gospel. That's a different thing. What is a gospel in terms of calling something written a gospel? As a literary genre, what's a gospel? Right? What we think we're doing when we read something or when we come to something, our expectations matter. They affect our engagement with it, right? If you eat turkey bacon expecting actual bacon, you're going to be disappointed. Maybe some of you won't be. I'm going to be disappointed, right? If I know I'm eating turkey bacon, I know to like prepare myself. This isn't real bacon. It's okay. You'll be all right. If I'm expecting actual bacon and I get turkey bacon, it's going to be a weird thing, right? More close to what we're doing here, right? We read advertisements differently than we read news stories or novels. Or if you read something thinking it's a certain type of thing, you're processing it a certain way, right? And if we don't do that, we end up very confused. If you read the news the way you do a novel, you're going to think what's real is fake. If you read a novel the way you read the news, you're going to think what's fake is real, right? There's so many advertisements nowadays that are designed to look like news, right? So that you'll read it a certain way. So the better we understand the type of thing that we are reading, the better we're going to read its content, right? We're going to know what this stuff is actually supposed to be saying to us, and that is going to help us. So the Matthew is the first of four books in our Bible that are called a gospel. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What does that mean, right? What does it mean for something to be called a gospel? I think there's three different things that help, kind of help us clue us in. Because I really think they, they are, in a lot of ways, a unique thing. They don't just fit neatly into a category. We can't just say, oh, this is history, this is this, this is this. They're, they are a unique 
thing that God kind of put together to serve a specific purpose. But there are three things that kind of help get us there, that is elements of these things. The first one is something that comes from the culture of the time, it comes from Greco-Roman culture, and they wrote things called, they called them bios, which means life, lives. A famous one was a book called Lives by Plutarch, you know, a Roman historian, right? So they wrote these biographies. They were really kind of the first ones to really write biographies, something like we call that nowadays. And there are a lot of characteristics. If you read the Gospels and compare these to these Greco-Roman biographies, there's a lot of similar things uh, that are very different from what we think of as biography even. So these ancient biographies, they focused on the life and death of a single individual. They were very focused on one person. They tended to be about the same length as our Gospels are. The, these ancient biographies almost always began with an ancestry. They kind of orient you on who this person was, where, where they fit in the broader scope of things. This is very different and weird for us. They weren't always in chronological order. Right? That's weird for us, right? We, oh, we think, as modern Westerners, we think very chronologically when we think about somebody's life or events. These biographies weren't always organized that way. They were organized to tell certain things, not necessarily the order of events. And that is the case at times with the Gospels as well. And they also aren't meant to be comprehensive. These biographies were meant to sell, to sell a certain thing. They intentionally filtered out certain parts of a person's life. Not to be dishonest, but because the goal wasn't to be exhaustive, but to tell you a certain truth about the person. Right? And all of these characteristics are, are, can be seen in the things we have called Gospels. There's just definitely this biographical aspect. These are all biographies of Jesus, in a sense. And they serve a purpose, an important purpose, in that they ground Christianity in historic reality. Right? That's a huge, huge thing. Christianity is not something that lives in the realm of ideas. It is something that is flesh and blood and dirt. It happens in reality. But, but the Gospels are more than this, too. Right? It's not simply just a record of, oh, here's Jesus' life. This is an important guy. Here's what he did. There you go. If, if that was the case, we could have called it the, the bios of Matthew, the life of Matthew, right? Or the life of Jesus by Matthew. We could have easily called it that. The, the, the church could have seen it that way, but they didn't call it that, right? They called it the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And that word gospel is a different word from Greco-Roman culture, right? And this is the second thing that kind of helps inform us of what, we're, what are we getting into here. This word is euangelion. Euangelion. That's our, the word that we translate gospel. So uh, we usually define that word as good news. But when we look back and see how it was used in the culture, it wasn't just generic good news. Like you just didn't say it when it was, you know, you got any little, you know, your football team won. It's like, oh, yay, gospel. Like, it wasn't that sort of thing. It was much more narrow and much more specific. It was specifically used for the triumphs of, of kings. It was specifically used for the triumphs, the victories of kings. There were these people called evangelists, right? It came from the same root as Evangelion. And they, their job was to travel around, because there was no internet, right? They went from town to town, and they proclaimed and said, hey, Caesar won this great victory here, and he liberated these people, and isn't he glorious? And that's what these people did. This was their job. They went around and proclaimed the victories and the glory and the greatness of Caesar or whoever the king was. 
so that people would know how great he is and what that meant for them. There's an inscription that talks about this. So we have, um, talks about this with Caesar Augustus. It says, uh, the birthday of the God, I was talking about Caesar because they thought Caesars were gods. There was a kind of a cult around Caesar worship, was the beginning of the good news that came through him to the world. Right? I mean, that sounds like a Bible verse that we do with Jesus in it, right? But that, that's, that's where the source came from. It was they had this idea, this elevated view of these kings and their triumphs and their glorious victories, ushering in this, this wonderful time for their people, right? And that was a very intentional reason that Jesus and the apostles picked up on that word, right? And picked up on that idea, because that's really, really close to what we're talking about with Jesus. It adds a layer that biography doesn't have, right? Gospel, euangelion, implies that the accomplishments of the king, they're not just distant, right? When we read a biography, if you read a biography, it's usually because the person's interesting, or maybe you want to learn some life lessons from them, but it's very, like, it's very distant, you know? It doesn't, like, if I had to read a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, I don't read it for, like, its impact on my life right now. I'm like, oh, he's a cool guy. Let me find out about him. It's kind of a curiosity, a novelty almost. Galleon brings this closer, right? When these guys, when they proclaimed the triumph of the king, they were also saying that this triumph was for his glory and your good. You were caught up in this somehow. This is for you somehow. Biography is distant. Euangelion injects you in to the life of the triumphant king, essentially. It ties you to it. Right? You are caught up in this thing in a way. And it is very much something that the Gospels are doing. Right? They are telling of the triumph of King Jesus, but they are very much concerned about showing us how we are caught up in it and what it means for us. It's not a distant thing. It brings it near. So those are two things that kind of help us understand this literature we're looking at. But there's one last one, and this one doesn't come from Greco-Roman culture. This one comes from the Old Testament, from Jewish culture, right? And the last thing I think we need to understand to really have a, a good understanding of a gospel is covenant. Covenant. So these biographies or even these gospels, they kind of lived on their own. Like they were their own independent thing. They didn't kind of live and breathe and in the context of other stuff. They were sort of somewhat autonomous. But the biblical gospels are absolutely not that. They cannot be rightly understood apart from their context, their tie-in with the entire Old Testament. Right? The gospels are, they just don't appear in a vacuum. They stand on the heels of all this other stuff. And this is especially true of Matthew. It is probably the most Old Testament-saturated book in the New Testament. You know, Hebrews and Romans can kind of give it a run for its money, but I would still argue Matthew is the one, right? It is so, so you cannot understand Matthew without the Old Testament, right? And we cannot, and this is crucial because we've got the life of the king. Euangelion teaches us the victory of the king and what this means for us. But what seeing that in the context of covenant helps us to understand what is the victory? What kind of triumph do we actually need? Right? That comes from everything we see before in the Old Testament. 
Right? We don't need just any kind of generic victorious king. We need a king who will do very specific things. We have a very specific enemy, a very specific problem, and we need a very specific kind of liberation by a very specifically victorious king. And we don't know what that is apart from everything that comes before. So these three things kind of paint us the picture of what a gospel is, right? The gospel tells us the life of Jesus, right? Like a biography, it does, but it does more. It doesn't just tell us about the life of Jesus, it tells us about what the life of Jesus means for us. And then in its covenantal context, it tells us why we need the life of Jesus to mean that for us. Why we need this particular type of king who brings this particular type of kingdom and wins in this particular type of way. Because it has to be this one. It has to be this one. So that kind of makes sense. Does that kind of help you understand what it is we're about to dive into? Like this is what the gospel writers were writing. They were putting these things together to give us the best picture they could of, of really the heart of Christianity, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and why he has to be this particular sort of king. Now, I mentioned we have four of these things. We have four of these gospels, and they're all written by different people. Right? This is a little interesting. Why do we need four different things to tell us about Jesus? Right? It seems like one would be enough. Well, as I mentioned before, these, each of these gospels talks about Jesus and his reign and all the things we just talked about from a slightly different angle. They capture different aspects of what Jesus is doing in a unique way. And so one of the, the other things we need to think about is like, okay, so who is Matthew? Why does God have Matthew write one of these gospels? And what comes through Matthew's pen uniquely that helps us and that serves us well? So a little bit about Matthew. Matthew's also known as Levi. If you see a disciple named Levi, that's Matthew. Matthew and Levi, same guy. Right? So Levi is either his tribal name, he might be a guy from the tribe of Levi, or he might be one of those two-name situations like a Saul, Paul, we're not totally sure. But we know both of them refer to him. He's one of the 12 disciples that Jesus calls to follow him. We're going to see much more about him as we go on in Matthew. But I think what I want you guys to realize now as we get into it, before we get into the texts about him, is that before Jesus calls him, he's a tax collector. Right? Everybody loves tax collectors, Right? Favorite people, right? Now, there's a couple things that this means for us. First, it means that he was well-educated. Right? To be a tax collector, this required very detailed record-keeping. He had to be able to work with Hebrew and Greek because he's working for Rome <laughs> with Hebrews. Right? So with this means Matthew was an educated guy. White-collar. And this shows in his writing. Right? There's a lot of detail and nuance and subtle and really beautiful things that he does that are really the mark of somebody who has this kind of training or this kind of background. But the more important thing even than that, being a tax collector meant he's educated, but we need to understand what a tax collector meant then. Because it's not the same as we would think of as like an IRS agent. It's, it's much different than that. To be a tax collector the way that Matthew was in Jesus' day was to much more to be like an enemy collaborator, right? To be somebody in France when Nazi Germany invades, and once they do, you go show up uh, and say, hey, what can I do for you guys? How can I jump on the team? Right? That's how these guys are seen, because they are collecting taxes for Rome from their fellow Jews. They are working for 
the oppressors. These people are absolute pariahs in Jerusalem. They are the, in the little kind of bottom social rung of Jerusalem. The sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all of those sorts of people, they're in that group. The people who are not just sinners in the sense that we all are, they're socially unacceptable sinners. They're the people that the respectable Jews don't talk to, don't hang out with, kids don't play together. They are absolutely despised by their fellow Jews. But why would they do this, right? Because tax collecting paid really, really well. So the way this worked for Rome is they would hire you to be a tax collector, and they would tell you what, they, what their cut was going to be, right? Hey, Matthew, this is your area. This is who you get to collect from. We need to see this much come in. But they did not determine how much you collected from everybody else, just how much they needed from you. So the, the upside of being a tax collector is whatever you could get out of people, you could keep the difference. So this could be a very, very lucrative career, but also a pretty scummy one, right? Because basically you're... Income cap is based on how willing you are to extort and manipulate and take advantage of other people. So they were despised doubly, right? On the one hand, they're working for the enemy, they're working for the oppressors, and they're not just working there to get a salary, they're actively manipulating, extorting their fellow countrymen for their own wealth and gain. So Matthew was a sinner in like the deepest sense that we can think of that word, right? He was absolutely hated, and he lived with the weight of being known as a sinner. People knew who he was, and they knew what he did, and they absolutely hated him. He carried a sort of scarlet letter that marked him as an outsider that no one wants to have anything to do with. So he was rich, he's well-educated, but he was not a respectable Jew, He was one that no self-respecting Jew would associate with, would dine with, would talk to. In many ways, if you look at the list of Jesus' disciples, Matthew's probably the least likely one, the most unusual. There's some unusual ones. Really, Jesus, that's the one you want? Matthew's probably the most eyebrow-raising. And he certainly would have been to the other disciples. Like, you want us to partner up with this guy? He's going to go everywhere with us? It's interesting, he had all this skill with money, but he doesn't end up being the guy who handles the money for the disciples. Judas does. He's the guy who makes sense, but I think you can probably see um, some of the distrust and everything there. So that's this guy's background, right? This is not, you know, this is not Paul. Paul who thought he was this great, self-respecting, self-righteous Jew. Matthew knew who he was, right? He was pragmatic, He was getting while the getting's good until Jesus calls him. Such an odd character for Jesus to call. Such an odd character to be a disciple, and yet it's his words we read opening our New Testament. So let's take what we know about gospel and what we know about Matthew. I'm going to put those together for a minute. So what makes Matthew's gospel distinctive? The gospels are all written by God, by his Holy Spirit, but he works through the human authors, right? They're distinctive based on who these guys were. That's how the Lord works in this. So a couple things. So I used to read the Gospels. I used to read them like, they, like it was like an embedded reporter writing. They're like giving play-by-play. Oh, and then Jesus did this. That's not what's going on. This Gospel's written some like 20 years after Matthew's time walking with Jesus, 
right? So Jesus' time on earth ends. Matthew's doing ministry with the other apostles. He's had like a 20-year career ministry of ministering Christ and seeing the church take off before he puts pen to paper to write this gospel. This is not just like a, his travel notes as he goes. He's had all this time ministering Christ and seeing the church grow. And there's a verse in the midpoint of Matthew's gospel that I think helps us understand Matthew and his work in writing the gospel. In Matthew 13, Jesus says this. He says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. It's a little bit of an odd verse. We'll dive into it more when we get there in the book. But the picture is is essentially that he's saying a scribe, a, a teacher, who's trained for the kingdom of heaven. So we're talking about a teacher not of the Old Testament Jewish law, but somebody who's become a disciple of Christ, who's been trained by Jesus to know how to read Scripture, know how to train Scripture. He's like a master of a house who brings out these treasures, old and new. And the picture is like a, a curator of a museum. Right? You've got this, this place that's filled with all these beautiful treasures and everything, but if you go to a museum, not everything they have is on display. Right? They've got tons of stuff back in storage, and curators are the ones who decide what comes out, what do you come out and show people? How do you position them to give people the best experience of this this richness? That's the picture here. And there's a lot of reasons that that I think Matthew sees this as his calling as he writes his gospel. He was trained by Jesus on how to read scripture. And now, as the apostolic ministry has gone on, the apostles are getting further on into their life. They're not going to be around that long. It's time to put pen to paper to record this work, this training that Jesus has given him. And so what he's doing is he's pulling out these treasures old and new. He does this by bringing out what is rich from the Old Testament, right? And I already mentioned this. Matthew has tons of references and connections to the Old Testament. It's, in, it's incredible, right? So he sees himself on this other side having been trained by Jesus to read this rightly and to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so he's pulling those things out for us. And now he's taking what he saw being with Jesus, and he's pulling those things together, and he's taking, he's not, it's not everything, obviously. He was with Jesus for three years. There's so much more than this, but he's taking the perfect things that give us the perfect, right picture of what we need to see about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. Matthew relentlessly and skillfully connects Jesus with the promises and pictures of the Old Testament. And in doing that, he adds clarity and and beauty and weight to the good news that he's proclaiming. And he does this right from the jump, guys. He doesn't bury the lead. I want to start to show you guys how this plays out in the book, just from that first verse really not even a complete sentence, but there's so much in there already, and you can already see Matthew doing this with his very first words. I read this earlier. The first verse is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this first verse, is, it's really a section title, right? And it kind of describes what the first little chunk of the book is about. But it also gets to the very heart of what Matthew is doing, and it's unique. When he this says the book of the genealogy, weird phrase for us, right? The phrase in Greek is biblos genesis. Now, that second word sounds very familiar, 
Biblos is where we get book from. Genesis sounds like the first book of the Bible, right? That's on purpose. The only other place we see this phrase, there's genealogies all over scripture, but there's only two other places they're introduced with this phrase. One is in Genesis 2 and the other is in Genesis 5. In Genesis 2, it introduces creation, right? It talks about this is the the book of the origin of creation. And it goes on to give a creation account, right? So it's saying this is, the, this is the origin of the world. And then in chapter five, it's the genealogy of Adam. It's the human race. And again, we have this same phraseology. So this book of the beginning phrase is only used to introduce these three genealogies. And they are all are incredibly significant and weighty. Matthew is intentionally immediately drawing our attention back to Genesis because he wants to show us Jesus' significance from the jump, right? Jesus' arrival, Jesus' incarnation, Jesus showing up on the scene is on par with significance with the creation of man and the creation of the world itself. That is how important Jesus taking on flesh is that this is that level of a new beginning. So Matthew, from the jump, in the first three words of his gospel, is saying, whoa, like, get your attention. And if you're, a, if you're a Jew and you're familiar with the Old Testament, that is going to catch your attention, that phrase. You know, we have to dig around because we're distant from it. A lot of these things we talk about, they would know, they would recognize right away. Matthew is doing something very intentional here to show us how much Jesus matters. Right? This gospel is no biography to take life lessons from. It changes everything. It changes reality at its core, the same way creation or the existence of man does. There's literally nothing else Matthew could do in so few words to drive home the significance of what is going to follow here. And he immediately starts painting it out and giving us details of why this is the case. And he does so by telling us immediately who this person is, who this reality shifting, this person who changes the course of history, like the fact that there is anything in existence at all does. And he says it's Jesus. And then he lists three things about him. And he's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that immediately is followed up with this genealogy that inverts that order, right? We see Abraham first and then David, and then we see Jesus as the Christ at the end. Those three phrases, those things describe and they start to paint the contours of who Jesus is and why we should see him as so significant. We're gonna work our way backward in the order that the genealogy gives it to us. So Abraham, what's the significance of tying Jesus to Abraham? Well, by tying Jesus to Abraham, Matthew's connecting Jesus with the Abrahamic covenant, right? The Abrahamic covenant. And at the most basic level, the most fundamental thing we seem to hear is that he's showing Jesus is Jewish, right? That's, that's, the, that's the surface level thing. Jesus is Jewish. That's important. We'll see more why later. Right? But he is not just any Jewish guy. He's not just a son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. Right? There was a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. He's going to have a lot of descendants. There's going to be a lot of people who can claim the title son of Abraham. But there's also a very specific promise in there that there will be a seed, an offspring, singular, that is going to be unique. We see this in Genesis 22:18. 18. 
says, in, in your offspring or seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. This is not talking about all of them. This is talking about a single particular one. And this is echoing us back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve fell into sin, right? And they're cursed for it. God comes and judges them. In the midst of that curse, we see his grace and mercy in this promise to Eve that there is going to be, that her seed is going to be at enmity with the serpent and he's going to crush his head. We call this, theology, we call this the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. This is the first promise that the curse of sin is not the last word, that there's going to be an undoing, a changing, a, a salvation from that curse. And it's tied to the seed, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. When God gives this promise to Abraham, he's echoing that promise, right? And he's giving us more specificity, right? So with Eve, we know, okay, it's going to be somebody who comes from Eve. It's pretty broad because that's all of us, right? It could be anybody. With Abraham, we get it narrowed down, right? From everybody down to this one little nation that is, doesn't even exist yet when Abraham's there. This one family, okay, the seed the serpent crusher is going to come from this family. The one who undoes the curse, who conquers sin and death, is going to come through here. Right? And so that's, that's what Matthew's connecting us to, right? He is not just a son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. When he says he's a son of David, we move forward in history. The genealogy continues. We see David there. And when Matthew says Jesus is the son of David... It's getting narrower. It's getting more specific about the one who will repair what sin has broken. It will not just be a man who's from Eve. It will just be a Jew from Abraham. It will also be a king in the line of David. If we look back at 2 Samuel 7, we see this promise to David. He shall build a house for my name, speaking of this king to come, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this is very clearly not referring to David's immediate son. This is not referring to Solomon. There are things in this promise that refer to Solomon, but not these ones. These ones can't. Solomon's dead. He died a long time ago. Right? This was... Another pointing forward to who this seed was going to be. We've narrowed it down. Eve, Abraham, now we know that this seed, this one who crushes the serpent, is going to be this righteous king who sits on the throne forever, who rules and reigns in righteousness and justice and brings about unshakable righteousness and peace and brings favor and blessing on his people. Right? So we're getting more and more specific. And Matthew again is me like, hey, Jesus... This is it. Keep following the thread. Let's bring us finally to Christ. Jesus Christ. I think a lot of times we end up thinking that, Jesus, that Christ is Jesus' last name. We're so used to hearing them together, right? Well, it's not. Jesus, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Anointed one. In the Old Testament, anointing was used to mark off people that God called to a specific office of prophet, priest, or king. And as time goes on, as these prophets, priests, and kings all fail to do what they're called to do, they never do it perfectly. They're never able to actually 
keep the people faithful. They're never able to do all the things that this Davidic king is going to do. The expectation builds that all these messiahs are really just kind of placeholders and pictures of a messiah, singular. Somebody who's going to take on all these offices, prophet, priest, and king, and is going to do them perfectly. He's going to be the perfect representative of God to his people and the perfect representative of his people before God. And so this expectation builds. As the failure continues in Israel, the expectation builds of this anointed one who is going to finally deliver the, pe- the people. In short, what Matthew has packed into this, this one partial sentence, he's packed so much into this one verse that he's, he's setting this up for. He's, he's not kind of slow playing this out. He is coming straight out with his main point. He's not, he's not hedging his bets. He's basically come out in his first verse and said, hey, Jesus is the one. All this anticipation you've had, you're looking for this person, this one who would crush the serpent's head, this one who will rule in this way, this one that we desperately need, this is the guy. And the rest of the gospel is going to be out showing that this is the guy. And what exactly does that mean? What does it look like? when the anointed one shows up, right? What is this king? How does this king actually rule and reign? What does this look like for his people? What does this kingdom look like? And we need this because it doesn't necessarily look the way that we'd expect. In fact, in a lot of times, it looks very much, very much the opposite of what we expect. This is why we need this gospel church. And this is why it should be so rich for us. Even as Christians, we can so easily forget what Christianity is at its core. Christianity at its core is not a moral code. It's not wise advice for living. It's not a compelling philosophy or theory. It's not a political or economic program. It's not a fix for all the ills of society. It's not self-help or a relational cure-all. It impacts and affects every one of those things in different ways, but they're all peripheral. They're not what it is. Christianity, at its core, what it actually is, is the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the prophet, perfect prophet, priest, and king, the snake crusher, the one who will kill sin and death and break the curse. He has come. And he has lived and he has died to conquer sin and death for his people. And he will keep them and he will bless them forever as their eternal savior, brother, friend, and king. That is what Christianity is. Christianity is the declaration that this has happened in history, in real time. The king has come, he has triumphed, and he has triumphed for his people. That is what Christianity is. Everything else is secondary. And that's why we need to spend time with something like Matthew. We need to be reminded of that. We can get distracted by so many secondary and tertiary things and take our eyes off the God-man who gave himself for sinners like us and brings us into life. Let me pray for us.
Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness in giving us this revelation of yourself, for, for not keeping us in anticipation anymore, but making clear who your Messiah is, who your Christ is, who is this one who is going to deliver us, who's going to break the bonds of sin and death that we cannot break, that nobody has ever been able to break. This is the one, the only one, qualified and able to do such a thing. Lord, I pray that you would, as we continue to walk forward through this book, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that that is what we need. We tend to think there's so many other things that we need most, whether it's all the things I listed earlier, fixing the economy, fixing the government, fixing social problems, fixing just my everyday life and my productivity or my marriage or my kids. All these things are things we want, but what we need is we need, we need sin and death to be dealt with. That's what we need. All that stuff doesn't matter if we are still imprisoned under that, and that is what you have done. That is what you have done. You have not given us something that tells us to do better. You have proclaimed your victory for us and the liberation that we have from death itself in Jesus. Lord, don't let us think that our secondary needs are the most important And don't let us look and try to turn Christianity into something less than it is, something less glorious.